0: We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Julian Brigden, co-founder of Macro Intelligence 2 Partners. How are you today, Julian?
1: I'm great. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Tom
0: really looking forward to this conversation i know it's been a a long time coming and looking forward to digging into some of these macro themes with you but mm-hmm. i'd like to start with you know seeing that we we just experienced the fastest rate hiking cycle in us history to you know combat inflation there's been much talk of the fed pivot as they slowed the the pace of rate hikes of course it seems that the fed is also focused on breaking the fed put behavior in the markets mm-hmm. I believe that your, your view is that rates stay higher for longer. So are, are these the main reasons that you see the Fed taking this, this stance?
1: So I think, you know, if you look, you know, by way of sort of some background, I worked for a policy think tank for a long, long time called Medley Global Advisors. And um, at Medley, we went off and talked to directly to all these policymakers and clients paid us an absolute pigging fortune for, for the information, told. And it was highly useful. I mean, in the old days, we literally got the nod half an hour before the Japanese intervened off the low end dollar yen uh, off 80, right? And, you know, when you, even, no matter what you pay as a client, you're going to make your money back 10 times over in those sort of situations. So I still have lots of friends who are still in that kind of space and, In a sort of conversations that we had, it was it was plainly obvious last year that the Fed had grossly underestimated the strength and the resilience of uh, inflation. And then you start to think about what are what are kind of the options. And really, from a policymaker perspective, there are only two viable paths to take. There is what is referred to as deliberate disinflation. And this is the policy that Paul Volcker uh, pursued um, in the late seventies, early eighties. And if you want an analogy, this is when you take the economy out to the swimming pool, and you take your hand and as the central bank, and you put it on their head, and you shove them under the water until the economy drowns, mm-hmm. dead. Right? Option number one. Clearly, not a very pleasant option, particularly given the high degree of debt. And highly financialized economy that we live in. Option number two, not deliberate disinflation, but opportunistic disinflation. So opportunistic disinflation um, is that you don't directly kill the patient. If you want to go back to that analogy, you take the patient out to the pool, you put your hand on their head. You don't shove them directly underwater, but you put them, Tom, to the point that it is pretty unpleasant. They are bluttering. Now, what you hope to happen is the water to drain out if you want you know, something to come along which affects that level of inflation and drains it out of the system. So let's say you get a huge burst of productivity right, mm-hmm. that comes in and um, increases the efficiency of the economy such that you know, inflation is no longer uh, an issue. Um, doesn't mean you don't necessarily embrace the recession you opportunistically take advantage of the events as they come along but because you don't deliberately drive the economy into recession tom the whole process takes longer i mean you might it might be that some exogenous event happens in a few months and you go straight into recession and it's kind of like you pursued a deliberate disinflationary policy but you don't know that so you have to plan to be in this uncomfortable, fluttering kind of environment for a long, long time. And when I mean long, I mean years, not months. I mean, if you, the only other policymaker that's pursued this, and we've never tried it from such lofty levels of inflation, um, was Alan Greenspan in the mid 90s, and it basically took the guy four and a half years of essentially unchanged interest rates to reduce CPI by about 200 basis points. So the uh, the idea that you know we were going to do the sort of march rates up, and then immediately they get some to the top, and then march them all the way back down again is fundamentally unrealistic uh, from a policy perspective, it has never been, I mean, even if you go into a pretty ugly recession, the typical reduction in headline CPI in, the, in a post-war recession, okay, from the start of the recession to one year after the recession is less than 200 basis points, right? So the idea that we, even if we go into a swinging recession, Tom, that suddenly inflation just evaporates Doesn't pass the historical smell test. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this and you say, okay, well, the bond market assumes all the way up and then all the way back, you know, back down again, hundreds of basis points of rate cuts as we move into 2024 and 2025. Then you go, okay, is that incompatible with what the equity market is looking at? And then you go, no, because the equity market is looking at the bond market and going, oh, you know, we're just going to have to survive this little bit of pain now. And then we're going to get those rate cuts and we'll be off to the races. And then you go, okay, so the price thing is kind of compatible, but then you kind of follow the logic of the two markets. So how could it be that you could get that all the way up and all the way down in the bond market? So option number one is, as I said, that inflation just evaporates. Mm -hmm. Possible. Historically, as I said, even allowing for a recession, not overly likely. So then you go, well, maybe the bond market is actually pricing in a big recession. And then when you look at the equity market, you go, well, that market sure as hell isn't pricing in a big recession. And that's really where the disconnect comes. It's not so much in the pricing. It's the logic underpinning the pricing where the disconnect is, I think, is is most interesting.
0: Mm And that's part of the, let's say, Powell's idea that he really wants to break the Fed put mentality of the markets, right? Yeah, I think, look, what people, the
1: bulls tend to underestimate is they look at this and they say, well, you know, inflation is coming down, the Fed can let off. The problem is, is that's not actually true. And the reason that it isn't true is because it might be true if we were coming out of a recession already. If this had been 2011, we're post the GFC, unemployment's very high, and inflation you know, is dropping, and so we'd been in this situation, the Fed could go, well, look, inflation's dropping. We've still got plenty of runway to run. We've got an economy with lots of loose capacity. We can kind of let this thing go. That logic would hold. Mm-hmm but we don't. We have an economy where unemployment is 3.4%. We have an economy where trend growth is 1.75, if you're lucky, according to Powell. And so the issue is not so much inflation, it's really nominal GDP. So it's inflation plus real growth. And nominal GDP is running about 12% above trend, not Rate of change, absolute level. So let's, and and in the last quarter, it was running at about seven and a half percent. And I think actually, given where the labor market is, we'll probably accelerate in the next quarter to about eight and a half. But let's just take seven and a half. So let's say inflation tomorrow disappears. The equity boys are going to go, woo, right? We can part it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if your nominal GDP, which is a function of the labour market, and the broad you know, because most of most of GDP is consumption, so it's consumption of that, that whole labour market, what people are earning, how much they're how many hours they're working, what they're taking home, right? That kind of set your nominal GDP. If that nominal GDP stays at seven and a half, even if inflation disappears to zero tomorrow, your real growth has to accelerate to seven and a half, definitely, right? How do you grow at seven and a half percent with three point four percent unemployment, trend real growth of one point seven five, without creating huge wage pressure, and then boosting your core inflation metrics. So you could have this situation mm-hmm. where your headline dropped, inflation dropped, your real growth accelerates, all your underlying inflation pressures continue to rise. And then the, then your headline inflation will stop falling, and it'll shoot back up again. And that's why the Fed, the Fed understands this thing only too well. And that's why, even though it's politically very sensitive, their ultimate target, and you can tell from the tone of their conversations, has changed from headline inflation to these inflation metrics, which are really linked to the labor market. So core services, x housing, x energy, right? Mm -hmm. That's really a function of what's going on in the labor market, which really means that they're targeting significantly higher unemployment. It's a politically contentious thing that they can't really say, but unless they break the back of the labor market, they cannot lower nominal GDP. And even if headline inflation falls, Given where capacity constraints are in the economy, we can't support that. So this is this is the target. I think is a is a weaker labor market. And that's Mm -hmm. why a recession, no recession is not an option. The only question is is how bad and how ugly a recession it is.
0: Mm -hmm. So does that make this a little bit different than the the analogous? period of the 70s, the inflation that we saw back then of inflation making higher lows two or three times before ultimately coming down? Or is the Fed, like you say, all too aware of that and trying to avoid that situation where they, instead of getting the job done the first time, they are reacting several times behind the curve? Right.
1: That is the question. Mm -hmm. Okay, And I think that that, uh, the answer is, I'm afraid, we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. At face value, and certainly when you look at longer term metrics in the bond market, for example, so there's this metric called term risk premium. So term risk premium is essentially, you think about it, it's kind of the insurance premium that you want as a bond investor for taking duration risk. So the longer the bond you buy, the greater the risk that you run that something goes wrong in policy and that the policymakers are not as um, stringent in, in pursuing their inflation targets as you would hope as a bond investor. So you should, over time, demand sort of some higher premium the longer the bond you buy. Well, at the moment, the term risk premium is negative, which actually means technically you're better off rolling your money over kind of in the overnights, right? Mm-hmm. Um But that shows that the Fed still has total credibility when it comes to the bond market. So right here, right now, I think the Fed is doing a good job. But I was just at the same conference that Danielle was at, and there was a retired Fed president there, in fact, the only guy who's ever voted against QE, Tom Hernig. And Danielle Danielle invited him. And I posed this question to him and I think rightly because we'd interviewed him a few months earlier. One of my colleagues had on on Real Vision. Um, And he said, you know, I'm deeply worried and I am too because I'm close to that space. That you have a very politicized Fed. So the issue is not right here right now. Mm -hmm. But let's put ourselves in the end of this year. We've got 5% unemployment, right? We're going into an election year. What happens at that point? Does the Fed have the wherewithal and the resolve to stick with this? Or do they somehow buckle and they step back before they truly run the pressures out? Let's not forget... Tom, that like the 60s, there's, you know, things are never the same, but they tend to rhyme. 60s, part of the problem that we we were fighting the Vietnam War, we were fighting a war. Government expenditure was rising materially and the central bank had to make a decision. Do I stand in the way of the incipient overheating of the economy as a result of fighting this war, raise the cost for the funding of that war to government, or do I, you know, play my part? And essentially, they decided to play their part. And we're now fighting a kinetic war with Russia, a Cold War with China, and a climate change war. Right? And arguably, the debt dynamics are far worse than this time. So what does this look like two years, two years down the line? You know, we're in a recession. The Republicans and the Democrats are both fighting for re-election in 2024. I, I was at a dinner a year or so ago, where I posed a question to a senior Republican party person, and it was a sort of, you know, private dinner. And I said, look, you know, it's late 2023, we're in a recession, you've got election in 24, Biden's still in the White House, you control both houses, right? It looked like that was the case going to be at that mm-hmm. point. Um, do you spend money? Do you let Biden come out with a stimulus package? And do you spend money? And they said, well, we want to get reelected. The guy said, "Well, we want to get reelected too. We just want to spend it on different stuff." So, imagine we're in twenty twenty four. We've got fiscal spending coming through on top of all the military-related spending and climate change spending that we're trying to do, and the market, the bond market, is now as we saw, say, in the gilt market, starting to get concerned about you know the ability to maintain these fiscal deficits in this because we've unleashed fiscal right five years ago we never used fiscal now it's the new tool but we're doing it when we're already covering carrying an enormous quantity of debt mm-hmm. right so imagine a situation where we're it's 2025 you know we've spent all this money they've got reelected, but inflation has started to pick up again and the bond market's under pressure and the fed has to make a decision do, am I with government? Am I part of the US government? Am I really just an extension of the US, the will of the American people? And do I then, do you then get something like yield curve control or more QE, right? And that's when the gold bugs will get their day in the light, right, because then the dollar will go, right? So I think these are all valid questions to ask. But they're not right here, right now. Right.
0: The Fed always seems to be kind of behind the curve reacting to how the markets are reacting to its policy. And it seems like their data inputs are partially to blame here. I know you don't like the the JOLTS data. Do you think that their data inputs are part of the problem for their inability to act in the moment, let's say?
1: Yes, in part, but, uh, you know, in all fairness, they have a very different job to do than we do, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to steer the super tanker, right? We're doing this around the course of the super tanker. So, uh, uh, and they also know that monetary policy works with a lag in both directions. So, you know, if they wait a quarter, do they, are they wrong? Right? Can they play catch up? Yeah, they can. Um the problem comes when you add a lot of market volatility to it, right? And I think that's the problem. QE has put so much money into the system um that we have these hyper sensitive financial markets. And the, the real issue is not the real economy. It is it is these Swings in the financial markets because they could quite realistically look at the real economy and go, okay, we can, you know, maybe it's getting a little hot. Let's leave it another quarter. And in that another quarter, you add another 20% onto stock prices, right? And then you're way over your skis when they finally do decide that they're going to act. And you don't get a 20% correction in the market. And then you get a 50% correction in the market. And then they're really trying to chase. To we you know invigorate the stock market again right so it's it's a i don't think it's a data issue i think it's a it's a system sensitivity issue to hyper financialized to, to super sensitive equity markets and and risk markets and and asset prices and how that feeds back into the real economy i think that's the real the real dilemma that they have mm-hmm. i mean because because they can't look at you know, live data pricing, right? And make a decision for the whole broad economy. They kind of need to see everything come together.
0: Mm -hmm. Another metric that you pay attention to is the housing market and the the strength of the home builders. So what is that market telling us right now? and, And why is that such an important signal? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, you, you know, look, we we had a we had a little run on this at the beginning of the year and got some got it right, and then you know what has amazed me has been the resilience of these home builders. Um, you know, some of this I think is is financial and accounting shenanigans. I mean, there was something about uh, on Bloomberg today talking about how we're seeing a greater divergence between revenue numbers and top line numbers to the greatest extent we've ever seen. And, and what typically that illustrates is that companies are goosing the numbers through accounting shenanigans. So you can, you can um, one of the things they were talking about, which I didn't realize before, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but basically if you've got inventory on your books, you can assume that it's sold, right? It's, right? it's just waiting to sell. So you kind of book it kind of now and take that money. And that's what some of the home builders have been doing. And so some of the numbers have been solid. I think they've been selling, um, some of their housing to, um, you know, big developer, big um, private equity firms and so on and so forth. But when I look at this and I look at the collapse in, and I tweeted this out this morning, you know, if you look at the collapse in mortgage application for purchase, those just dropped to the lowest level since 1995. So through the GFD, lows, right? And yet new home sales are still quite elevated. So maybe some of this is, and we know that cash buyers have been quite big buyers as a percentage of the marketplace, but as a percentage of a drinking marketplace, did that, you know, or sure, that percentage could increase, but did that be singularly holding the market up? Because we're selling over 600,000 new home sales apparently, and yet mortgage applications are applicable to about 150,000. three, four times as much. Well, that doesn't make sense. Um, I think some of it is um, seasonal abnormalities. We've written to our clients about this. I mean, housing data is notoriously inaccurate this time of the year anyway, because the total number of transactions that typically happen in the winter is tiny. And I can't remember which one. I think it's the Census Bureau that does the housing data, not the BLS. They, in fairness to them, this is the most heavily revised data because they're taking a tiny number of transactions, they seasonally adjust it, and then they annualize it. So if you, you know, if you only got one and you think that maybe the two happened, then all of a sudden, you know, you've grown 50% and everything looks great. We've had very warm weather. I think that's another factor that's tending to exaggerate some of the strength in the economy at the moment. So I think that's another factor. And it also doesn't include cancellations, right? Right. And cancellations, new home sales, bizarrely doesn't include cancellations because it isn't at the point of you actually getting the keys in your hand. It's at the point that you sign the contract and that typically happens before you get your financing, right? Or frequently happens. And then you can also, as a result, you can cancel So cancellation rates, we've seen, you know, some of these companies have talked about, you know, I think it was Lanar, 68%, right? So there is some, I think some very, very questionable things. And I think it's just indicative as well of a euphoria in the equity market, which goes back to that original point we made that the equity market is looking at the bond market and going, well, if rates are going up and then all the way back down again, why the hell would I bother? Selling, right? Mm-hmm. This is everything's going to come back. It's all going to be great. Well, it isn't, folks, because it can't for all the reasons we've just gone through, right? They have to break the back of the labor market. They have to slow this economy down. And when they do it, you know, maybe rates come down, but unemployment will go up and you won't sell those bloody houses anyway, right? So it's, I, I have a fear that in the second half of the year, and this is. Really, it's not I think we're heading for an 08, 09 kind of housing crisis in terms of credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're heading for a good old fashioned boom bust economy. And as part of that story and that slowdown, Tom, I think we're going to see a significant collapse in new home construction and activity. Mm-hmm. And that generally tends to be very heavily correlated to economic growth.
0: Because of the the number of jobs that um... partly, I mean, it's it's kind of a you know
1: the the I I wrote about this. There was Rocket Mortgage did a did an ad for the Super Bowl a few years ago, and they said, you know, um, imagine you just bought a house, and then in your house you bought a sofa, and in your and in the, and if it was easy to get if it was easy to get a Rocket Mortgage, and you bought your house, and then you bought a sofa, and then on that sofa with a hand turned legs. And the guy who sold you the hand-turned-legs business grew. And then he could get a mortgage easily. Wouldn't he get a mortgage? And then fill his house with all these other things. And then the line was, and isn't that what we do in America or something, right? And this is the whole point. This stuff is very additive, right? The multiplier effect of purchasing the house, decorating the house, buying shit to go in the house. Reverberates out, right? So it's much bigger than than that. And as I said, it tends to be pretty heavily correlated to um, the GDP. Mm-hmm.
0: So Julian, how does this higher for longer rate plan in the US affect Europe and the ECB? They've started to reverse their policy, but does this you know really create a dichotomy within the international markets?
1: So it's. Um, you know, firstly, they all tend to end up thinking alike, ultimately, right? I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a pretty insidious uh, um, schoolyard when it comes to central banking, right? They all went to the same schools, they all talked to each other. So I think they're all trying to pursue some sort of version thereof. I think if I look at, you know, the Fed acted faster, the Fed acted earlier than others, and others are beginning to play catch up. So we've seen now, uh, with the resilience of the European inflation data, um, that in actual fact now we're pricing in higher rates. What was interesting actually in Europe, what what was interesting actually in um, in Europe is Europe was never pricing in the cuts that we were pricing here in the US. Theirs kind of always went up and kind of stayed higher as you went out to 2024 and beyond. Mm-hmm. Ours went up and went back down again. And now as ours has... That have started to price out some of that assumed cuts, theirs is now coming under just a broad sell off and i and if I look at their economy and I look at the rebound that we've got in some of the um you know the avo- the avoidance of the calamity that would have been the energy crisis right We've dodged that bullet, in. okay, well, if you dodged that bullet and is actually stronger then the ECB is miles away from viable rates, arguably, right? I mean if you look at if you look at the spread between ten year bund yields and core inflation in Europe, it's minus three hundred basis points. Despite the fact that bund yields have moved a lot, it hasn't moved up at all, and typically before the global financial crisis, it was a plus 200 basis points forever, roughly, right? So you're 500 basis points offside as bond investors in Europe, right? You're, you know, even against core inflation, let alone headline inflation. So the idea that these bond markets can't adjust again, and the central banks having to play play this more hawkish role, I think is 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 wrong. I mean, I think a bit like the U.S. in the second half of the year, the risk, as I said, will rise in Europe around the consumer, around the credit side of the picture and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is just a partial reflection of starting in the U.S., coming to Europe now. Europe's taking kind of the lead in the sell-off and the weakness that we're seeing in bond markets. Um, and that will have a big reverberative effect here in the U.S. I mean, I'm, I, I like to look at my charts that, you know, a little bit of chart porn I don't think hurts anyone. It's kind of fun. Um, I've drawn this trend line on 10-year uh, Bund futures, and this le- trend line has hit nine times over the last 30 years. It broke at the end of last, you know, two days ago. Mm-hmm. And now it suggests, if you look at it, I don't see there's any support until you push bund yields another 80 basis points higher. Now, if you push bund yields, 80 basis points higher towards 3.5%, treasury yields are going along for the ride. They may not go the full 80 basis points, Tom, but we've talked about to our clients this issue of called fungibility. So in other words, you can take a bund and you can put an FX swap over it and essentially you can recreate a treasury. Right, or a JGB or, or a GILT or something. So, in other words, all these sovereign bonds are basically interchangeable. So, if the yields rise in one, if it's a big one, all it tends to drag up all the others or down all the others. So, 80 basis points on bonds. let's say 50, 60 basis points on treasuries. You know, you want 475 on four and a half percent on 10 year treasuries. That's how you get it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, the, I don't think ECB is in a radically different situation. I think they get their data tends to lag the U.S. They have dodged this energy bullet. Um, their data is also being exaggerated, I think, in part by the weather. They're going to benefit more, though, from the China reopening, particularly on the service side, uh, particularly because of tourism. Um So yeah, I mean, I I think the monetary tightening baton has passed to them, at least for the moment, but we will get caught in the wake.
0: So in that case, does that that create a stronger environment for the dollar or a weaker environment for the dollar, considering that, you know, the, the euro and the Japanese yen are you know, these, these really weighty portions of the DX
1: Yeah, exactly. Look, it's a, it's a, it's a very valid question. I mean, there are times when the currency drives markets. There's sometimes where it becomes a, it's dragged by other markets. And my sense is we're in, in the latter, not the former. And so, what happens to the currency will be, to a large extent, the function of other markets. So as long as we're in a benign risk environment as these yields rise, so not a, by that I mean, we've seen this interesting situation where um, the euro has started to rise and with it, as a result, in, in uh, euro terms, European stocks have out- outperformed US stocks. And so there's been a lot of European money in the US for the last decade. I mean, it's been the only place to be, mm-hmm. um, pretty much. Um, and suddenly, you've seen some of that allocated flow go back to Europe. And I think this is what people tend to underestimate. They tend to say, and it's logical to say, you know, oh well, you know, if, if I say the euro is up 10% this year. Uh, you know, which stock market do you want to own and you sit there and go, well, you know, maybe profits in Europe have been under pressure because they can't export as much as U.S. companies and they can export. But the reality is it doesn't actually work that way, Tom. What tends to happen is the country with the strongest currency tends to have the best performing equity market because it sucks in money from the rest of the world. Right? Right. They get attracted by that strong currency and they go in. So we've had that for since at least Arguably since 2011, but definitively since 2014, we've had the strongest currency here in the U.S. So the money's all come here. And as that starts to kind of wobble,
0: um,
1: the money can can go back home. And so that's kind of a long way, way of saying, if we can continue to see relative equity performance by Europe, either because their economy is stronger or because we maybe get a big sell-off here in the U.S., Again, and this this is where the bubble remains, right? This is where the excessive valuations remain still, right? The U.S. is still massively overvalued versus its peers on a historical basis, right? Then the euro can rise, but it isn't the euro driving it. It's the euro being dragged by those flows.
0: Right. So is it possible, Julian, with the moves of the BRIC nations really moving towards settling trade in their own currencies and away from the US dollar, will that bring about a rapid change in the current reserve currency status for the dollar? Or is this perhaps a longer, more drawn out type of process that could be in part motivated by how many US treasuries that many of these countries still hold?
1: So once again, <laughs> a great question, Tom. And the reason I say that is because, as I said, to, back to this um, this conference that I was with, uh, with Daniela. I mean, we were there with some of our other peers. So there was like Louis Gav was there, Posnar was there, uh, Stephanie Pomboy was there. And we were all in this kind of bizarre uh, forum uh, in Vail, Colorado, um, where I spent quite a lot of my time. And it was a bunch of high net worth individuals who essentially had kind of invited us to talk. And we all talked on different topics. And yet there was this one kind of Drumby in the background, slow drumby, and it was all of these issues, like I've just gone through, you know, what happens when the Fed is presented with this longer term funding and debt sustainability problem? Do they, are they forced, you know, maybe the guns at their forehead, but are they forced to kind of step in and intervene and prevent bond yields rising? And what does that do to the dollar? And does that coincide with all the BRICs launching their own kind of e-currency, crypto-backed, you know, blah, 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 non-dollar thing. And I think, to answer your question, I think the drumbeat is there. And uh, Posner talked about it and Louis Gabb talked about it. Uh, And I think they were all right. If you look at the fingerprints, the fingerprints are clearly visible that these guys are trying to move away from the dollar. Mm -hmm. Does it happen imminently? Does it happen... Without another, before we get another run up potentially in the dollar in a risk off, maybe we can get a risk off environment, the dollar rallies again and destroys everything again. Uh Doesn't necessarily mean that's the case, but longer term, when you go out, as I said, to 2024, 2025s, 2026s, does this seem kind of inevitable? And three of us were at the bar at this event and we all looked at each other and sort of went, of interesting. We all came at this from a different approach, but we're all coming to roughly the same conclusion. And it isn't a great one as a US citizen and investor and even a developed market citizen and investor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so I do think the world will bifurcate into that. I mean, I can't, I can't see any democratically elected government going with Russia, Iran, Venezuela, China, you know. But still, we'll see what they have got up their sleeve, because I'm pretty clear that they're trying that they're trying to concoct something. Mm-hmm.
0: So in that in that scenario that you brought up earlier of the US possibly going to yield curve control and really the, the idea that gold really trades inversely to the dollar, is that really the only thing that matters at this point? X major geopolitical strife?
1: You're for gold, for gold. Yes. Um, so look, it doesn't have to be yield curve control. It could be QE. It could be, you know, there's ways of, of creating demand for US treasuries and stopping yield rise that aren't necessarily uh, involved that. But, um, I, you know, lower real yields, should be supportive for gold, as we know. A weaker dollar would be very supportive for gold, we know. More supportive for silver. um, But nonetheless, I think, you know, is it the only thing? No, geopolitical tension. But it really, you know, silver is really a high beta dollar. You kind of look at when silver was you know, on its lows in 2002, that was the dollar high. And then you look at when silver was on its highs in 2011, and that was the dollar low. I mean, it really is that. Um, So I really think to perform, there's two preconditions that I would want to see. The first one is that I'd want to see relative strength. So I 'd want to see precious metals outperform let's say stocks, mm-hmm. right Because if you still look at gold and I did it this morning, it's still pretty risk on risk-off, right? You know, it rallies when there's risk on. it falls when there's risk off. Maybe it doesn't fall as much, but it does, right Silver definitively does. And so I'd want to see relative strength, and then secondly, I would want to see um, I would want to see a uh, dollar weakness, right? That would be the real all on black, right? All mm-hmm. on black. And I, and I, you know, that I think might happen. It might happen the benign way. So we might just get a weak dollar this year as the Fed stops, you know, and we do we slip into recession and they have to come in and they start to ease. And typically then you get the recovery, right? And then gold or silver will do very well in that environment. Um, but it's not clear yet to me that's how we're going to get that part. So I'm not putting my chips mm-hmm. on that just yet.
0: Is there a, a material difference in the way that gold and silver behave in that manner that you just described because of, let's say, the industrial demand for silver? Or is it just the idea that it is a more accessible you know, entry point or, or material for the average person to get into?
1: Not really. I mean, silver tends to trade. If you look at the ratio of gold against silver, and and you put it against break even bonds, in other words, that kind of go up and down with the, with the CPI, um, silver act, gold, the gold silver ratio tends to trade quite heavily with that. So in other words, in a highly inflationary environment, silver tends to outperform. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't really, I've looked at all the industrial stuff that I can, and I can't really see any, anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's like little high powered gold right? it just it wings around. And mm-hmm. so clearly if you knew that the dollar was going to be weak, then your best bet would be to be in the most leveraged silver related trade that you could possibly have. You'd have some of the gold stuff because you know, deep down, maybe it won't go this time, but it pretty much always does, right? Mm-hmm. So You know, junior silver miners is probably, you know, where you'd want to be if you've got the balls to do it. It's quite a dangerous (laughs) little trade, right? And if you vol adjust all of these things, it's like crypto. The crypto guys are like, I just made all this money, you know, at the highs. And you're like, okay, but you do realize the vol on this thing is 70 or 80, or at some point it was over 100. Whereas if you're doing FX, it's like it was seven at the time. Mm -hmm. So you can have... 10 times, 15 times the size of the position. But of course, retail investors tend to forget that.
0: Right. Until and of course,
1: Bitcoin collapses and then they remember.
0: Yeah, unfortunately that's a, a tough lesson to have to learn. And right. the idea that you're able to capitalize on that volatility and actually not have the hubris to think you're the smartest person in the world and it's gonna keep going and take some profits at or near, even near the top I think is, a, is a, a very tough thing to do when your psychology changes in that way, right? Correct, correct.
1: I mean, look, I learned the, the hard way. I, uh, on my first day on a trading desk, um, my boss came over to me and said, I was sitting on a currency desk, he said, you know, what do you, uh, what do you like? And I said, well, you know, I think, I think the pound's going to rise against the dollar. And he said, well, yeah, go on then, go and buy 5 million quid. So I went and bought 5 million quid. And he said, okay, so now where's your stock? And I said, Well, it's here. And he goes, Okay. So he goes off. Half an hour later he comes back and he goes, Oh, we threw you stopped, Julian. Did you stop yourself out? And I said, Well, no. And he literally he went <laughs> right across my forehead. And he said, The way you make money in this business is you run your profit and you take your losses. So that's the point, right? You run your profit, but you always have some sort of stop in there. So that you never, ever go from the point of being up on a trade to being down materially on the trade. Mm -hmm. That is the, you know, that's just unforgivable.
0: Right. So looking out a little further, Julian, you know, it it seems like there is a a real attitude change over the last couple of years towards China and, and towards, you know, the rest of the world from the u.s so does that theme of deglobalization that we've seen since covid really add to the inflationary pressures looking out a little bit further here
1: yeah i think it does i mean i i have written about how if you go back and you look um the bank of england did some great couple of really fantastic little papers and they were a little uh, about 700 years of bond market rallies right and they were pretty much created by the same factors right we tend to get arrogant we tend to forget i mean You know, people like me sit in front of the desk and look at, you know, hour by hour or day by day. Right. And most people only look maybe a year out. But we forget, you know, the world doesn't change radically differently. We've had periods where we've had just like we've seen since the end of the Berlin collapse of the Berlin Wall. We had a peace dividend where we expanded global trade, where we brought in China and Eastern Europe. Reduced our production costs dramatically, highly disinflationary, where we shifted spending from spending money on defense, which is highly inefficient and pretty, let's let's say, not disinflationary, right, to suddenly being able to spend it on much more productive uses of their cash, right, which is generally disinflationary. Well, we've seen that period throughout history where you've had peace dividends, breaking out of peace, bursts of trade, so on and so forth. But what was interesting is when the Bank of England did this work and they look at 800 years of bond markets, they identified 700 years of bond markets, they identified eight historical bond, what they called real rate depressions, where low periods of real, real rates, this would be the ninth. And what ended them to to an event were exactly the same thing. It was a reversal of that peace dividend. So it was an outbreak of war, which reverses globalization, reduces Mm -hmm. productivity, And or a pandemic. So when I look at this, to me, this period is just kind of over. This period of 40 years of global bond rally is over. And I got various other factors from demographics to technicals to, you know, to all these other things where I think we are now in a structurally bond bearish environment. And I think we're in a structurally. More inflationary environment. Tom, it doesn't mean that, like the 60s, to your original point, we don't have these big cyclical waves, right? And let's say this wave, you know, we see a significant drop in inflation, but my gut would tell me at the lows, we are not going through the prior lows, right? Every single low is going to be higher and higher because. While I can't guarantee this, and I said to you, I think i look at some of this and that the dots aren't quite there. If you actually ask me, where do I think the dots are kind of lying? Mm -hmm. They are lying in a greater inflationary, structurally inflationary environment, and a more volatile economy with a structurally rising bond yield. And that's radically different from any of us have seen in the last 40 years.
0: Yeah, as as you and I kind of chatted about before we hit record here today, it's it seems to be a, a very challenging market to look out upon, and you have to really be very nimble and understand your positions yep. as as best as you can, right? And, and yes, I think probably the the best idea is to not be married to them, right?
1: Yeah, I th- I think it's huge discipline when it comes to running risk, right? I think I think you have to be involved. I think passive I'm afraid I think is going to get really punished to the same degree that it's benefited in the last, you know, decade or so. I think it will it'll it'll cost um going forward. It's very hard because there aren't that many active managers. And if you do run risk yourself, which is fine, intense discipline is absolutely necessary because I have have Clients, you know, I have a a wealth manager who's been around for hundreds of years, and you would assume, and they manage some of the bluest blood money in the UK, right? And you would imagine they were the most conservative people out there. They are now some of the most aggressive people because they think this market is going to flip Mm -hmm. over the next decade or so from these periods of intense inflation, intense deflation, intense, inflation, intense, deflation within a cyclical inflationary environment. But that just switches you around. That's a trading environment. Tom. Right.
0: Excellent. CTAs
1: are a great trade if you can't do it yourself. What is, sorry? CTAs, right? Okay. So you should, you know, if you get a CTA who's relatively short, you know, you can put some money in that. I think that's a great, that's a good one.
0: Excellent. Well, Julian, I really appreciate you taking the time to go over all these things with us and share your views with us today is there anywhere you'd like to point to where our listeners can get more from you i know you guys just started a Substack at mi2 and your website as well mi2partners.com
1: yeah so you can if you, if you want to follow my musings on twitter i do understand that occasionally i like to bait some of the crowd but uh but generally i do post constructive things on there so that would be uh, at um, mi 2 And then if you're interested in any of the actual offerings, whether it's the, uh, the product we put out with Raul, which is the retail product or the institutional product, then contact the port at mi2partners.com.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much for your time today, Julian. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Tom. My pleasure. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.